Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hi, guys. I haven't had a guest or done an interview in a long time, it feels like. And today I'm doing my first interview with a long distance guest. I've been sort of afraid to do that, nervous about doing that. So I haven't done it before, but today I'm going to. And we'll see if this leads to more interviews and guests and things. Because, of course, if distance is not a barrier, then there's a lot of opportunities out there. So today I'm talking to Alex Cacchio, Sensei Alex Cacchio. He lives in Ohio. He is a lay Buddhist minister and a former Marine. I had the opportunity to meet him once when I went on a road trip that took me through Cleveland. And he seems like a really down to earth and nice guy. He serves as a teacher in the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism, which is a sort of a, from what I understand, a mostly online organization, but it's a little bit in the offline world as well. And I'm going to ask him questions about that. But it's a it's considered a non-sectarian Buddhist Sangha that encourages students to find Dharma teachings in everyday life. So that'll be sort of an interesting thing to talk about. And Alex is also the author of a book called Perfectly Ordinary, which is about Buddhist teachings for real life. So I think his views are kind of in line with mine. So uh, that's it. That's all I have to say by way of introduction. And so now we will get into our conversation. And I do want to say thank you for listening. And here we go. Okay. So to get right into it, welcome, Alex. Um, I've got your book here, Perfectly Ordinary, here with me. And we're just, my intention is for us to just talk about your story and your view of things, because I think that my listeners will find your story very fascinating. So awesome. Thank you. So, so I'm, I'm very glad you're here. Thank you for being here. I want to ask you, um, people probably ask you a lot, how did being a Marine help you be a better Buddhist? I'm not going to ask you that, but I am going <laughs> to ask you, I'm going to ask you how you became a Marine. And the reason I'm asking that is because I think some people enter that because they really just really want to and they really want to serve and they really feel good about that but i think other people enter that because they have a sort of a financial need Mm -hmm. or they don't know what to do with themselves or they you know they can't afford college reasons like that so Mm -hmm. i wanted to ask you what inspired you to do that because that is different from what a lot of people do sure so i wanted to ask about that Sure. Uh, so yeah, I'll answer that, but then I'll I'll also answer the uh, the question you didn't ask me, which is how being okay. a marine helps me be a better Buddhist, because they are interrelated, believe it or not. Um. So growing up, uh, I grew up in a military family, so lots of uh, people in the navy, lots of people in the army, uh, air force, things of that nature. So I was always around that culture. And then a lot of the um, a lot of the authors that I enjoyed reading as a child, uh, Ernest Hemingway, Pat Conroy, uh, they also had military service as well. So it was just it, it was just kind of a thing. It was always around me in some way, shape, or form. And I think what really drew me to the the U.S. Marines um, was that call to serve. You know, um, I just wanted to contribute in some way to the world. And when you're 17, 18 years old, you don't really know how to do that, right? You you think you have a lot of world experience, but turns out you don't. So when I was looking for ways that I could serve, that I can be helpful to the people around me, uh, the military seemed like an option. And... What I really enjoyed about the U.S. Marines and speaking with the recruiters is that they actually kind of tried really hard not to recruit me. Uh, 
all they really did was tell me, you know, it's going to be really hard. Not everyone gets through it. Um, you're going to have to prove yourself. And it was kind of a weird thing where the more they told, the more they questioned my desire to do it, the more it made me want to do it more. Um, so I think there was definitely a feeling of wanting to serve and be helpful. And then there was also a feeling of wanting to prove myself to myself, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, it sounds like the, um, the recruiter knew what you needed to mm -hmm. inspire you to do it, right? Like these people are good at their jobs, right? Absolutely. A hundred percent. So he, he, he saw me coming a mile away and knew exactly what to say. That's for sure. Um, but it was really good for me. It, uh, it fulfilled some of that sense of adventure that I was looking for. You know, I got to travel the world, you know, I was on ships, I, I was in the desert, things of that nature, uh, also instilled discipline in me. So I learned the importance of keeping my word of being on time, of, you know, being part of something bigger and larger than myself. And that bled right into my Buddhist practice later on in life, um, because in Buddhism, we also have a very strong commitment to helping others and being of service to others. And, you know, we work to improve ourselves, but, you know, the Bodhisattva vow, I'll attain enlightenment so that I can help others attain enlightenment, uh, that sort of thing. And in the Marine Corps, it was the exact same idea of, you know, I'm going to make myself physically stronger. I'm going to make myself better at my job so that I can be of service to my platoon and help them with their jobs and not be a burden on other people. So and then so there was that also the and people don't like this word, but the discipline aspect definitely played a role. Uh, so a big part of my training has been in Zen Buddhism. And Zen Buddhism is very, very strict, very rules-based. You know, this is how we bow, this is how we chant, this is how we sit. And none of that was a culture shock to me because I was so used to that same sort of mentality in the Marine Corps of this is how we stand, this is how we salute, this is how we wear our uniforms. So when I was in the temple and they were giving us instructions on this is how we wear our robes, it was... It was just like when I was in the Marines, they were telling us this is how we wear our uniforms. So it really helped me insert myself into that temple environment very easily and helped me kind of roll with the punches of my Buddhist training without, without too much thought, really, and just really being able to just focus on the training itself without, you know, being overly resistant to it. Mm -hmm. Okay. My my sense, um, and that is, I have no military experience at all. I one that was never an option for me because I have epilepsy, but also I'm I'm kind of cowardly, so <laughs> I scare easily. But my sense is that an aspect of it is you're learning how to be uncomfortable. Yes, and Buddhism also challenges us, us to be uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. that that was my sense for why why it could be helpful because. In the military, of course, you go and you whatever, they're going to tell you what kind of bed to sleep in and you're going to do it, right? right. They're going to feed you whatever and you're going to eat it, right? Mm -hmm. so you don't have the options that <laughs> we always do in our regular life. Right. Is that is that right? A hundred percent. You'd actually be uh, surprised the similarities between a, a traditional Zen Buddhist retreat and, you know, what in barracks life. Uh, not to say that they're exactly the same, obviously, but you do have that exactly like you said, like, well, this is where we're going to sit and this is where we're going to sleep and this is what we're eating. And no, there's not any other options on the menu. This is it. So having already had that experience in one way, having it in another way um, was just kind of went with it. And then also with some of the practices like seated meditation. So when we practice meditation, we're expected to you know, attain the noble posture, whether that's sitting cross-legged or using a seiza bench. But then once you have that posture, you don't move, right, until the bell rings. And that's hard for a lot of people because 
you know, it is uncomfortable after a while and you have to deal with aches and pains, but having served in the Marines and having had serious, um, similar experiences where maybe we're doing a training exercise and, you know, we, we're all camoed up and we're hiding in the bushes and we can't move because we don't want the, anyone to see us. You know, it's, it's a similar experience to that where you just have to learn to be okay with being uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, my leg hurts, but I've experienced this before. I know nothing bad's going to happen. I can, I can deal with this discomfort for a while or mental discomfort. You know, um, a lot of people are surprised to know that retreats aren't exactly fun most of the time. Oh no. (laughs) Especially the longer ones. So Mm -hmm. just having done those training exercises where, you know, we haven't eaten in 12 hours, we haven't slept in two days, you know, having dealing with that discomfort, not to say that I dealt with anything like that in, you know, Buddhist retreats, thankfully, but being able to deal with that discomfort of, wow, I haven't sat in a chair in four days. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that sort of thing just understanding that it's okay to be uncomfortable that it's not the mm-hmm. end of the world i think is a, a very important lesson for me uh yeah i like to say that if if someone tells you that a retreat is going to be relaxing or fun uh they're trying to take your money a hundred percent that's because <laughs> <laughs> it's not pleasant so um so moving right along next, I want to ask you, um, well, first of all, actually, I have one more question about the military, and that is, do you call yourself a former Marine or a Marine? Because I know some people say, this is not just a job. Once you're in it, this is what you are, even when you're not active anymore. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know if you think of yourself as a Marine. Yeah, I, I definitely think of myself as a Marine. You know, once a Marine, always a Marine. Um, I generally, you know, refer to myself as a former Marine when I'm speaking to civilians, just so they don't get confused and think I'm still serving. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that stays with you a hundred percent. It's not something that, you know, well, that part of my life is over and I'm going to move on. It's like you carry that with you continuously. So, and that's one of the things that I didn't realize to be honest, was part of it, but it's that, that familial bond is, is very nice. Mm-hmm. That idea that whenever I meet a veteran or family, you know, even, even if that's the first time we're meeting and actually now that I think about it, that's another sort of similarity between my military experience and my Buddhist practice is that in Buddhism, we have, you know, Dharma brothers, Dharma sisters, Dharma mm-hmm. grandfathers, right? So, um, I don't think anyone has ever said once a Buddhist, always a Buddhist, but uh, there there definitely is a familial bond when I meet another practitioner of the way, um, mm-hmm. whether they're part of my tradition or another tradition that, okay, we've, we've sat, we've both sat in front of the altar, we've both bowed, you know, whether we realize it or not, now we know that we're family, so. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, so now we will stop talking about that. We'll move on to talk about Buddhism. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what inspired you to explore Buddhism. And then if there was a process that led to you getting serious about it. Sure, sure, absolutely. So um, I've always been mildly obsessed with the idea of being good um, that probably had something to do with my religious upbringing. I was raised in the evangelical Christian church. Uh, Pen- my family's Pentecostal. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar, we speak in tongues, we faint when we're struck by the Holy Spirit, that sort of thing. And it was a very strict, very traditional household. So for example, we weren't allowed to read the Harry Potter books because that was witchcraft. <laughs> Uh, When we went to the arcade, we weren't allowed to play pinball because if you won, you got another ball, and that was gambling. And if you gamble, you go to hell. What? Yeah, you didn't know that? No. No. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I was here to tell you. (laughs) (laughs) 
so that was my childhood and i definitely always in my head associated being good and doing the right thing with inner peace and with happiness and while there's clearly some problems with that that did lead to a lot of material success because i always wanted to be the best at everything so uh, i was in karate i practiced ishinru karate and i was a black belt and national champion i was in the boy scouts and i was got Eagle, Eagle Scout being the highest rank in Boy Scouts, got good grades in school, went to college, joined the Marines, got good grades there, uh, got a job in corporate America, climbed the corporate ladder. But eventually what ended up happening was this happiness, this inner peace that I was waiting for just wasn't coming. And I kept telling myself I was always just, you know, one more promotion, one more raise in salary, one more purchase away from feeling good and not just trying to be good. And it just, long story short, I just ran out of stuff to try. I, I had sports car, I had the apartment, I had the job. And I, I remember very distinctly staying in my apartment just thinking like, is this it? You know, or, or, I have all the gold stars. Where's my reward? <laughs> mm -hmm. So that being the case, really just out of desperation, I started to turn towards spirituality. So then I was reading a lot of different books. And eventually I happened to find some books on Buddhism. And that's when I read The First Noble Truth of Buddhism, which states life is suffering, which may be a turnoff to some people, but to me, it was terrific. I thought it was great because I was suffering and I'd finally found a, a religion, a spiritual practice that, you know, named and validated that suffering instead of telling me it was all in my head. Because uh, up to that point, I'd had these conversations of, you know, you have all this money, how can you be unhappy? You have this great apartment. Why are you ungrateful? And it's like, I'm not saying I don't like my apartment. I'm just saying the apartment doesn't make me happy. <laughs> so, so that was great. I love the first noble truth. And that's when I really started to dig into it, into Buddhism. And what I really enjoy about this practice is instead of being told I needed to be good, it just tells me I just need to be if I can just exist in this moment and just let life be what it is, that's all that's required of me. So really exploring that, really exploring what does the Heart Sutra mean when it says there's no attainment with nothing to attain? And how can I live my normal everyday life without trying to attain something, which is what I'd done for all those years previously it has been a very fulfilling and very sort of enriching experience for me. Okay. So I think, yeah, I think when people say things, when people have that attitude, we have everything. Why aren't you happy? Like they're not thinking like rich people kill themselves every day. Like people that yes. have everything are unhappy all the time. Yes. But <laughs> it's so, it's so silly to me, but that is, that is, an attitude people have they think you you know you've got the thing i want why aren't you happy right so, very true very true so and you if i understand your your story you first practiced in the korean zen tradition mm -hmm. in the quantum school i first practiced in a korean zen lineage as well but i wanted to ask I was going to ask, why did you leave the Zen tradition? But I don't think you feel like you left. Mm -hmm. But rather, why did you, rather than continuing to train with that, you went and trained with another tradition. And mm -hmm. so I'm wondering what led that to come about. And we're, we're going to talk a lot about that tradition that you're in. But I just wanted to know what how that came about, rather than just sticking with the Quanam school that you started practicing with. Sure, sure. So I started in the Quantum School of Zen uh, under Pope Saw Link Rhodes. 
And that was a really terrific experience. He's a fantastic teacher and I learned a lot from him. What ended up happening, however, was as I practiced more and more and went deeper into the training is that there was this tension between my Buddhist practice and my daily life. And I was having trouble reconciling the two. So I would go and I would do, let's say, a three-day retreat. And I'd come out of it and I'd feel very calm and very peaceful. And, okay, my legs are a little sore from sitting that long and from doing all the bowing. We did 108 bows at the start of every day, but like I, I, I knew I was onto something. I felt very, if I can use this word, very pure. But then after doing that, I'd have to go back to my corporate job. And now people are yelling at each other at, over the conference call and people are making lewd jokes at lunch. And it's, I just could not put these two things together. So my question was, can I practice Buddhism and have a normal life at the same time? And all of the books I'd read up to that point suggested that you couldn't, to be blunt. Um, they either were very academic. So these were professors who weren't actually practicing Buddhism, but they learned and knew a lot about it and they were writing about it. Or these were monastics who either lived in monasteries or had lived in monasteries. You know, they spent 10 years in Japan and there was always a sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge feeling that if you didn't do that too, then you weren't really practicing. And I, I want to be clear, none of this was ever said by Pope Selink Rhodes. He was nothing but supportive. This was all going on in my head. But what ended up happening was I decided that I just needed to leave the corporate world behind, that I couldn't do both was my conclusion. So, and I, I actually talk about this experience in the book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, where I, I sold all my, I sold everything or I gave it away. You know, I gave away my car, gave away my furniture and I went on the road and I spent about eight months in retreat, uh, living and working on organic farms. So in the morning, I would meditate for two hours, work, uh, do, meditate for another two hours in the evening after dinner, do some sutra study, go to sleep, wash, rinse, and repeat. That was my, my life for eight months, which is meditating and working. And that was really good. But then what ended up happening was I was still, I still wasn't quite sure if I could do both. And what changed my mind on that was reading the Lotus Sutra. So, and that's when I learned about Tathagata. So Tathagata is an interesting word for the listeners who don't know. It's a Sanskrit slash Pali word that means he who has thus come and it also means he who has gone away and Buddha refers to himself as Tathagata um, in the Pali Canon but in the Lotus Sutra that word is used to refer to reality as a whole so the world is Tathagata the world is Buddha and then that's where in the Lotus Sutra we get the Trikaya teaching um, where we have the Dharmakaya, which is Tathagata. We have the Sambhokaya, uh, the joy body of Buddha, um, you know, the celestial beings, Kanan, Jizo, etc. And then we have Nirmanakaya, which is us, right? The physical Buddha. And also the Buddha of 2,600 years ago. So now reality, Buddha, the man Buddha is all one thing. And that just blew my mind because what that essentially meant was that the absolute reality and the relative reality, my corporate job and my spiritual practice were also one and the same. So that 
caused me to realize that there was no separation between the two. And which is good that I figured this out because I was running out of money. So (laughs) 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 I needed to get back to work whether I wanted to or not. Um, So that led me then to try and find a spiritual practice that really focused on integrating daily life with spiritual practice. And that's when I found um, Reverend Koyo Kubose and the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism. And that's really their focus is how can we do both at the same time? Okay. So yeah, some people tend to think you have to sort of give away everything or you have to like, you're not a proper Buddhist if you're not like, if your career is something other than yoga teacher or what, I don't know, what else do people make money at when they're a massage therapist or something, right? If your career is not directly, absolutely helping people, then you're not really a Buddhist. And I think that attitude is really strange and I don't like it. So I once had an experience, had an experience, but I once was, was just reflecting on these things and sort of having a tough time and getting confused. And I saw a, broken beer bottle in the road because I was going for a walk and I just I just thought it just popped in my head oh a beer mm-hmm. bottle reflects the entire universe <laughs> a beer bottle reflects the entire universe and th- that just that gave me that moment where suddenly not everything changed but mm-hmm. some of these heavy metaphors and heavy things like what's in the Lotus Sutra were easier for me to grasp because I just hey. thought, oh well a beer bottle reflects the entire universe. We think we have things, we have categories where we think, well, this is spiritual and this is not. But the truth is, no, it's all spiritual. Right. right. So a beer bottle reflects the entire universe. So a corporate job reflects the entire universe. You you do work a corporate job now. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Okay. I work a government job. So, so it, it's not that your first teacher or your first practice was lacking so much as just you were looking for a specific thing at this time and you Mm -hmm. found something you really connected with. Yes, that's correct. So it's, uh, it's interesting just going back to what you said though, about the metaphors in Buddhism, what I found that sometimes it's better to not treat them as metaphors. If we just take things as they're said then they start to make sense. <laughs> so I, I'm just thinking of um, Ihe Dogen when he said that uh, Buddha is a shit stick. And everyone tries to figure out, well, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what you say. <laughs> uh, the thing we, we wipe our butt with is Buddha. The toilet is Buddha. The altar, the guy on our altar, it, it's all Buddha. Mm-hmm. And- everything right worshiping things worshiping buddha creates problems for us i think yeah yeah so very much so so yeah i i agree with that completely so how did you find bright dawn i know like there's a headquarters in california somewhere right Mm -hmm. that's correct how, how did you find it uh really it was just an internet search believe it or not Um, I just, uh, I'd finished working on the farm and I was looking for another place to train. I, I didn't want to go back to Indiana, which meant I couldn't keep practicing with Pope Selink Roads, but I wanted to continue my Buddhist training and I was just searching around and I happened to find a book online called The Center Within which is written by a man named Reverend Guillaume Kubose. And he, unfortunately, is no longer alive, but his son, Reverend Koyo Kubose, is president of Bright Dawn. So in my research of Reverend Guillaume, that's how I found his son. And finding his son, that's how I found Bright Dawn. Okay. And now, so now is the point where we've got to talk about Buddhism on the internet. Sure. Um, (laughs) And that is, if I understand correctly, Bright Dawn, a majority of teacher training in that Mm -hmm. tradition is online. Is that is that correct? A majority? 
Yes, uh, okay. actually, it's uh, it's one hundred percent done online. Okay, one hundred percent online. So you just online. you do your training and you just you go there for a ceremony, though, right? You did have to go there. Yes, we go, okay. we go there for the induction ceremony at the end. Okay, so and so I, I imagine you've come across some people who say Buddhism on the internet or training mm-hmm. on the internet is not real or mm-hmm. something something shitty like that right and, yes <laughs> and like i think i i think that's a bizarre take for a few reasons and one reason is people get phd's on the internet now right like you can go to right. college on the internet so it's it's i mean it's not that different really and but also i think it's weird people still have attitudes about that because now it the quantum school is doing it right mm-hmm. like it's it's totally the big organizations are doing it now the quantum school is doing it shambhala is doing it mm-hmm. san francisco zen center is doing it and like you can be trained by jack cornfield and and pay that amount of money he asks for and become a teacher online right so that's correct it's so mainstream now but i still see people railing against it so i wanted to know if you would want to speak about people railing against that kind of training Sure, sure. Well, I I think the issue primarily is one of just not understanding, again, going back to that separation between spirituality and daily life. And we really, it's so important that we understand the teaching given in the Lotus Sutra, that we understand Tathagata, that we understand the oneness of all things, because what ends up happening is we start to divide things and say, well, this is real Buddhist practice and this is fake Buddhist practice, or this is the watered down Buddhist practice, right? So mm-hmm. unless you leave your family and sit in a temple for three months, then you're not a real Buddhist or you're not really dedicated, which frankly is false. Um, because if we understand Tathagata, then we understand that Yes, bowing in front of my altar is spiritual practice, but so is picking my kids up from school. And it's not the action that's important. It's our mind that's important because everything comes from the mind anyway. So this idea that uh, we can't learn Buddhism from books or we can't learn Buddhism online, that idea is, is hinges on that fact that you know daily life is somehow separate from Buddhism or that the absolute is something that's higher than the relative world that we need to attain, right? So we're all down here in the mud, but there's an absolute world above us that's somehow separate and different. But that's just not supported in in the sutras or in the teachings. If you look at uh, Nagarjuna, for example, who's an Indian Buddhist philosopher, he taught about the two truths doctrine and he taught about the absolute world and he talked about the relative world but he also taught that they are both essentially one and the same that it's only our mind that separates the two it's kind of like saying a wave is separate separate from the ocean it comes from right our mind creates that distinction because it makes it easier to understand but there's really no distinction there so when we talk about learning buddhism and learning Buddhism online, I really have zero interest in what's quote unquote real Buddhism. My focus has always been on making the Dharma available to as many people as possible. Period, end of discussion. And the idea that you can only practice Buddhism if you live near a temple and if you don't, then oh well, just isn't something I'm willing to entertain. All right. Yeah, that's that's kind of my view, too. Like, I want to reach people and reach people as widely as possible. And I think there's a lot of sort of gatekeeping sort of. And I also think there's this view that, like, you've got to have a famous teacher to be taken seriously, too. And I I also don't like that. And I think people see things that way as well. I had somebody ask me, who's your teacher? And I was just like, you're not you you haven't. I'll tell you, but you haven't heard of him. So. Mm -hmm. (laughs) like people expect to hear a famous name and that's this it's bizarre to me that fame has entered into buddhism as well yes well uh nirvana is samsara so 
we we all come into the practice thinking that Buddhists are holy, enlightened, transcendent people, but the, the fact is we're as screwed up as everyone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is spiritual materialism in the world, just like there's there's the uh, normal materialism that exists in the world. And one of the things I really enjoy about Reverend Koyo and his approach to Buddhist practice is that he is 100% unpretentious about everything. So you never get this feeling from him that he's this deeply enlightened, better than you are person. Mm -hmm. uh, you always get the feeling that he's, he's right there with you uh, giving the teachings. And even if someone tries to put him on that pedestal, he always very quickly steps, steps off the pedestal. Uh, which is something that I respect and is something that I think sets a great example for the rest of, for the rest of us. Yeah, that, that I'm sure for many people, that pedestal is really tempting. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really humble or else you're going to have different kinds of problems, I think. Sure. And, and we, we've seen that in Buddhist history, different kinds of problems come up when you're not humble enough. So, yeah. so, um, and what you teach and you do teach now and what you teach is the bright dawn tradition but the bright dawn tradition though we should be clear draws from all sorts of different areas but that is what you teach in is that right sure so uh i'm rooted my teachings are rooted in the pure land and zen buddhist traditions so I practice with uh, Bright Dawn. I also still practice Zen as well um, with a gentleman, a gentleman by the name of Venerable Shiying Fa, who is a Chan Buddhist monk. So I, I sort of have a foot in both camps where I'm doing the traditional Zen training, but I'm also you know, practicing in the Bright Dawn tradition, which is a non-sectarian Buddhist school. Mm -hmm. um, and so my teaching, I, I don't think it's correct to say it's the bright dawn way because there really is no bright dawn way of practicing okay. Buddhism. Uh, but my, my teachings are very heavily focused on the Pure Land and Zen Buddhist traditions and lar more largely on the Mahayana Buddhist tradition. Okay. Okay. So... Um, and I have just to circle back to that that internet discussion. I um I I wrote an article about Buddhism on the internet just because I, I think it's weird that there's still pushback about it when it's mainstream. But in my article, I said, and I, I recognize these flaws in practicing on the internet, but also I recognize that I'm 40 years old and people that <laughs> young are younger than me have a very different view. So whereas at my age, like what I can't imagine doing is meeting someone far away and falling in love on the internet without meeting them in person. And I know people that are 10 or 15 or 20 years younger than me are doing that a lot. So sure. I also wonder if it's a generational issue. And um, so, so what I want to ask you is, what, what do you think of that? Do you think the direction Buddhism is going to go is more online trained? That is, after this outbreak is over, more mm -hmm. and more online. Obviously, that's where things are going right now. But do you, do you think it's going to keep going in that direction? Especially because, like, having a physical temple is really expensive. And, mm -hmm. and Buddhism is not really spreading as much in the United States as it may be used to. So it's not like at some point there's going to be temples everywhere. It's probably not going to be temples everywhere ever. So sure. I, I wanted to ask you, do you think that's the direction that Buddhist teaching and teacher training is headed is more and more on the internet and less in real life and less of people having that attitude of it's not real if it's not in person? Oh, yeah. Yes, I definitely think increasingly you'll see people receiving teachings online. Um, 
and re receiving teaching empowerments via online training for a variety of reasons. Uh, the first being uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that so Buddhism has survived by really ingraining itself in whatever community it was a part of. So when the historical Buddha was practicing, he and his monastics lived amongst their community and they went out and they did alms rounds and they received donations. And in return for those donations, they gave people blessings. And then that's how they supported the Sangha. If you go to Japan, Korea, China, they have these monasteries, but they're still performing services for the people and receiving donations in exchange for that. So uh, weddings, funerals, uh, baby blessings, things of that nature. Uh, in addition, so it wasn't so much I go to the temple and I pay you and you teach me Buddhism. It was, I go to the temple, you do this ceremony or this service for me, and then I pay you. So that was the financial model, more or less. And we simply just don't have that here in the United States. There, there are very few people having Buddhist funerals right now. So how you support a temple that way uh, becomes a challenge. Right. And then also the idea that you find a teacher and you train with them for 15 years. You know, I'm a millennial. We are expected to not stay at a job longer than three years if we want to move up. So we're constantly moving for our work. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we could stay with one teacher in one place for 15 years and support ourselves and our families just doesn't work out economically. So for that reason, I think what's going to happen in the West is that more and more teachings are going to move online just out of necessity so that they're available to people. And then also because of the reasons I mentioned earlier. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's going to go more and more in that direction just because well, also, I think when things start to go online, also, you can't stop it or slow it down. I mean, I don't I don't go to my real bank ever. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's the, it, it started and it's it's not slowed down. Right. Nobody goes. Well, people go to their banks, probably, but not me. So I, I think I've been in my bank maybe once in the last three years. <laughs> so but. The one limitation I see in practicing online, and it, and I, that's really the only real solid limitation I see is if you're practicing online, you're not making Buddhist friends, not in real life, right? Mm -hmm. So that that there's a community aspect that I think is lacking, but I think the teaching aspect I think comes through just just fine, and I think we shouldn't worry, and I think it won't be long before the day will come when someone becomes a successful and famous Dharma teacher and they've never met another Buddhist in real life. I think that day will come mm -hmm. and we'll see that. And people will be talking about that sure. because it's, it's possible now. Yeah. So I'm really interested for how that's going to shake out. So your book, um, we're going to talk about your book now. Your book is all okay. about Buddhism in everyday life. It all is all about what, what you said your initial motivation was, which was being able to have this and this together rather than having to run off and, you know, work on a farm. So <laughs> that is what your book is all about. And I, I really <laughs> like it. That's kind of how I tend to view things as well. I think we don't have to. I think that this is something that is available for for all people and mm -hmm. isn't just for the certain kind of person that's willing to cut everything and change their life. That that being said, I think it, if you're a serious practitioner, it's going to change your life. But I also think that you can be in the world. I think it's it's very clear that you can be in the world. And I think Buddhist history mm -hmm. has always had 
sort of the monk tradition where people are out of the world and the ordinary person tradition or lay person is what we say. And I don't, I'm not crazy about that term, but I don't also don't have a better one, but mm-hmm. the, the lay people and even lay teachers who just are in the world, who just are raising kids and working a job and doing whatever they do. There's always been that tradition, but still some people have these things stuck in their heads and I don't know what my point is here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a favorite story in your book? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, so just backing up. So, the idea behind the book, "Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life," was really explaining my own journey in learning how to blend my spirituality with my daily practice, and in addition to that, learning how to find that Buddhist lesson in everything I'm doing. And the way I do that is I take the core tenets of Buddhism, the Four Noble Truths and the Noble Eightfold Path, and I lay them out uh, doing two things. So I speak about them from a theological perspective. Um, This is the teaching, this is how it's explained in the sutras. And then I tell stories about my own experience about how each one of these tenets has helped me in my life. So how did the first noble truth help me understand suffering and how to end suffering for other people? How did the, how did working on a furnace in a farm uh, when my hands are cramping because it's cold, how did that teach me about right livelihood and the importance of that? Um, You know, what, what, does our current political situation have to do with right speech and how can we practice right speech when talking about politics, things of that nature. Uh, So that being said, the one story that I would say really kind of sums up the entire book and where I was going with it is one called perfectly ordinary, which is where the title of the text comes from. And it describes a experience I had, a realization while I was on retreat with Venerable Xing Fa, who's the uh, Chan Buddhist monk I mentioned earlier. And what happened was we were doing a retreat. It's a traditional Zen Buddhist retreat. So it's in silence. We're not allowed to talk. We're not allowed to use cell phones, laptops. Uh, And even the way we held our hands, we had to hold our hands in a certain way while walking. So it was a body practice. And also we weren't allowed to make eye contact with other participants as well, because communication can be done uh, through body language, right? Mm -hmm. So a very traditional uh, retreat in that way. And we're sitting and we're sitting and part of the the practice is kinhin or Um, walking meditation, right? So we get up and we do our walking meditation outdoors. And this is late fall. So it's rather cold. Um, And we're walking and we have a certain route that we walk around the property where we're doing the retreat. And there was a moment where I stepped on a branch and suddenly everything around me went technicolor high definition it's like if you're watching a tv show on an old cathode ray tv black and white from the 50s and then suddenly you switch to a high def 3d television from today like that that was the change and i looked at the trees and suddenly the trees weren't just brown they were like brown in like big capital letters and I saw that there were different shades of brown in the trees and they were just absolutely gorgeous. And I'm looking down at the dead leaves and they're not just dead leaves anymore. They're vibrant orange and yellow and there's all these nooks and crannies in them. I just saw a detail in the world and a beauty in the world that I hadn't seen before. And it was very cool. It was also a bit scary and a bit overwhelming. And I didn't know, I, I, I was just, I'm just going to go with this. No one else knows what's going on. They're still walking. I'm still walking. It's like, I'm just going to keep going, see what happens. I've been practicing for many years at this point. So this isn't my first, you know, 
aha moment. So I kind of know what to do. And we go into back into the cabin where we're having the retreat and then everything goes back to normal. So I was like, okay, that was interesting. And then we, we do our sitting practice again. We get up, we go back outside for walking meditation and everything's still normal, right? No more high definition trees. And I was actually very deeply sad when I first saw that because, you know, I wanted my, my technicolor trees and my high definition leaves and like I wanted everything to be pretty and colorful again. But as we're walking, I bent down and I picked up a leaf and I looked at it. And what I realized was that all of the colors and the striations and all the beauty was still there. That hadn't gone away. The only thing that had to change was I had to look close enough to see it. And that's when I realized the nature of reality. Uh, in Pure Land Buddhism, we speak a lot about uh, Amida Buddha's Pure Land. And part of Reverend Koyo's teaching is that this world we live in currently is the Pure Land. And we just need to purify our minds to see it that way. And that was the first time when I had that experience, when I saw the Pure Land right there in a cabin in the woods, and I saw how beautiful life really is. And realizing that it's always that way, that the beauty is always there, that the Pure Land is always there. We just have to take the time to look at it and see it, either if it's in a leaf or in our altar or in our job. And that's, I love that story so much because that really just spells out the whole point of the entire book is that these practices that we do are not an escape from the world we live in. They're practices meant to help us see the world more clearly, to help us experience it more fully and, you know, quite frankly, to enjoy it a lot more than we would if we were trying constantly trying to get somewhere else. I like, I like that story a lot. And I think that that is a good point for us to bring this to an end. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like it's been an hour, but it has. <laughs> I, I'm going to post a link in the show notes so everybody can have a look at Alex's book and hopefully buy it. Um, is there any final thing you want to say to my listeners? Oh, um, well, thank you for listening. <laughs> I, I appreciate you spending this hour with me. That was very kind. Um, if you'd like to read articles I've written on Buddhist practice, you can do that at my blog, uh, The Same Old Zen, which is at thesameoldzen.com. And you know, I'm very reactive when people you know send me comments, whether they're leaving a comment at my YouTube channel or they're sending me an email. So uh, please reach out to me, follow up. I, I would love to hear from you guys. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I will probably ask you to come on again sometime. I have many questions I could ask about Bright Dawn, I think, that we didn't, we didn't get to because there's so much to discuss. So <laughs> um, thank you for taking the time to be here and have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.